Hello, I'm not Tom Standage. I'm Charlotte Howard, The Economist's executive editor. And you're listening to The World Ahead, a series that considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on predictions and analysis found in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. In this final episode of our Future Gazing podcast series, we're doing things a little differently and turning the spotlight on the art of forecasting itself. We'll look back to the predictions we made for 2022. Just how accurate were we? And how do we even go about making these forecasts? Joining me today to help answer these questions are your regular host, Tom Standage. Hi, Tom. Hello, Charlotte. And Warren Hatch, who is the CEO of Good Judgment, a super forecasting platform that has been an economist partner for years. Hi, Warren. Hi, Charlotte. So, Tom, thank you for letting me take the reins for this final episode. Well, thank you. It's much better than me trying to interview myself, I think. (laughs) Well, that's probably true, though it's admittedly a low bar. Let's start with the process for producing the world ahead each year. How does it work? Where do the predictions and forecasts come from? Well, I think there are sort of four main areas they come from. The process starts every year in May. We have a big T and sort of in the years before the pandemic, this would be obviously we'd all get together on a Monday afternoon in the London office and we'd have people dialing in from elsewhere as well. And we would have lots of sticky buns and lots of coffee and lots of tea. And there would be a sort of huge sugar and caffeine rush. And this would lead everybody to come up with crazy zany predictions for what was going to happen in the following year. And essentially everything gets written down and people would be inspiring each other to suggest things in their own areas, but also in other areas. So that was the sort of starting point. And that gets refined into a sort of more sensible list by sort of the end of June of things that we think we might want people to write about and areas we want to focus on. Another thing that happens in that meeting is that people suggest interesting people to watch, people who have interesting opinions, but will also be you know, notable for some reason in the coming year. And that leads us to the second area of forecast. So we have the sort of the journalists giving us their hunches in effect. Then we have the external guests. And so this year we have, you know, quite a wide range of guests always drawn from the worlds of politics, business, science and culture. So this year, for example, we have Mia Motley, who's the Prime Minister of Barbados. We have Eric Adams, the Mayor of New York City. We have Brian Eno, the legendary musician and and producer. So, um, you know, it's quite a, a wide range. So that's the second area. Third, we have the number crunching forecasts from the Economist Intelligence Unit, our sister company, and they give us forecasts for about 15 industries and about 80 countries. So if you just want to see what our forecast for, I don't know, inflation in Turkey is going to be next year, you can look at the special section in the middle that comes from the EIU. And then the fourth area is where Warren comes in, because we also have a handful of predictions from the super forecasting team at Good Judgment. And so we sort of put together those four different kinds of summary, the sort of traditional journalistic hunch, the expert leaders in different fields, the EIU that you know is a specialist in providing forecast to business, and then the super forecasters who are this legendary team of forecasters. And we put all of that together to produce the world ahead. I have to say that I have worked here for almost 20 years and I knew none of that. So this is very interesting to me. Can you talk us through a few specific examples of forecasts from this year's edition? 
Sure. So some of the things we've predicted for 2023 are recessions. Um, we think a mild one in the US, a deeper one in Europe, and a long one in, in Britain that's probably already happening. We think continued conflict in Ukraine with some Ukrainian advances, but no resolution of the conflict. Uh, India's population will overtake China's. China will have a difficult year one way or another. Uh, and then we have sort of more specific things like, for example, disruption in energy markets we think could lead to a global diesel crunch early in 2023, so in February or March. So those are some of the sort of journalistic predictions. Then from the EIU, we have um, predictions that, for example, tourism spending will pretty much get back to its 2019 level this year. And another prediction in the EIU pages concerns the election in Nigeria. Um, and all eyes are on Peter Obi, who is the sort of outsider candidate. And the uh, EIU's forecast is that he will not win. And then our guest writers have some predictions too. So an example of that would be Jack Hiddery of Sandbox AQ, and that's a quantum computing startup that's been spun out of Google. And he predicts that um, companies are going to start adopting post-quantum cryptography this year. And then, of course, we have the really specific forecasts from the super forecasters at Good Judgment. And so these have actual percentage probabilities attached. For example, a 9% chance that Vladimir Putin will be ousted by the beginning of October, a 17% chance of shots being fired across the Taiwan Strait this year, and a 71% chance that President Erdogan will win the Turkish presidential election in the summer, and so on. So... The numbers that you just listed point to a fair amount of precision. And I'm wondering, Warren, if you can tell us a bit about how you get to those precise figures, how are these forecasts made, and what is exactly super forecasting? Sure, Charlotte. So we define forecasting very simply as thinking probabilistically about an uncertain future. And most of the time that's done with language. Something might happen, there's a distinct possibility it won't. Uh, we prefer to use numbers because uh, they are precise, so we all understand what it is. If I say maybe something will happen, we'll all have different conceptions of it. It also allows us to compare things. If we say maybe about this event versus maybe about another event, it's very hard to set them side by side. With numbers, you can, and you can also, and this is a key thing, have accountability so that when an event occurs or does not occur, you can go back and see how you did. And then you can build up a track record of accuracy when you're properly calibrated. And that's what we do. And super forecasting is simply a process to come up with the best possible probabilistic forecast. And there are basically three elements there that we really emphasize. The first is when you think about something, start with a base rate. What does history tell us about that? And that can be a challenge. So right with, let's say, Putin, what's the probability he'll be out by the end of the year? Well, there's only one Putin, so you could say it's unique. But then you might also say, well, what does history tell us? How often, say, did major changes in the Soviet leadership occur over the decades? And that's maybe, you know, 10% of the time. So that gives us a base rate to start with. And we'll go through other steps like that in an individual level, but then we go to the second step, and that is to compare with others. We all have limited information about these uncertain events, and by pooling our limited information, we can all benefit from each other's insights and accelerate our learning and get the best possible picture faster. And then finally, what we'll do behind the scenes with our data scientists is have state-of-the-art machine learning algorithms to squeeze out more signal. So Warren, there are obviously many components that go into each forecast. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the human element here and what the traits are of the people you work with and what makes them good forecasters. 
Yeah, and we know this because the researchers gave us tons of tests, and then they saw what kinds of characteristics correlated with subsequent accuracy. And we know a few things. One is pattern recognition. Being very good at kind of filling out an incomplete mosaic quickly is something you can test, and it does correlate with being a better forecaster. Another is being open-minded. So are your ideas something that you protect at all costs, or are they things that you're always testing and challenging and probing? The latter makes for a better forecaster. And a third key thing is being cognitively reflective. And that just means you don't jump to a conclusion. When you're presented with a problem or a new situation, you don't go, oh, yeah, I already know that. You kind of pause and let uh, your, your system two thinking in Kahneman terms guide you. And it can be hard. It takes work, but it gets you to a better forecast. And then the fourth thing that really makes a huge difference is to use crowdsourcing approaches. Even the best super forecaster will not do as well as a team of super forecasters. So if you have a group of people with those characteristics all working together, you'll get the best possible number. So how do you apply what you usually do to the world ahead context? How does your normal set of practices adjust for this exercise? Yeah, well, getting the question right is a lot of the work. The first step there is to find the right topics. And, and Tom walked us through how he finds the right topics. And, and this year, too, we, we had a nice opportunity to work with him and the, and, the, and the team to kind of brainstorm anonymously on what kinds of topics might be appropriate. And that's what we do all the time when we're coming up with the topics. The next step is to define the question. And that is really tricky. Unlike a forecast that you can update whenever you want, a question, once you write it and pose it, that's kind of it. And so you want to make sure it's defined well and very precise. And the head of our question team, in fact, is a lawyer, and he'll write a little mini contract for each of the questions. So you'll see the question just like you see in the world ahead, but for the forecasters, there'll be a few lines or even a paragraph going into more detail about how the question resolves and other kinds of details like that. Because what matters is that we're all forecasting the same thing. If we're not, we end up with a noisy forecast and we don't want that. Then the last thing we can do is these questions can be quite precise. And when they're super precise, they might become less relevant to the bigger question you're trying to understand. So what you can do then is have a cluster of questions. In the case of Russia and Ukraine, that'd be tough to nail down just a single question, but you can have a cluster of questions that can tell you something useful about the three scenarios that Tom has outlined with Russia going to be resurgent, is there going to be stagnation, or is Ukraine going to advance? You could come up with a series of half a dozen or a dozen very specific questions that can tell you something meaningful about which of those three scenarios are unfolding. Okay, thanks to you both. We'll be back in a moment to assess past predictions. But first, I want to have a quick reminder that if you would like unlimited access to The Economist app and website or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. Otherwise, you're missing out on our coverage of big global trends. You'll find the best subscription offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Welcome back to The World Ahead. So now we know a bit about how we put together our collection of annual predictions. Let's look back at the ones we made for 2022. So how did we do, Tom? 
Well, one of the things I have to do, to keep me honest, is I have to write an article as the editor of The World Ahead assessing last year's predictions and how we did. And we had two big misses in 2022, and they were on Ukraine and inflation. So we went to press in early November of 2021. And at that point, there was a buildup of Russian troops, but there had been buildups of Russian troops on Ukraine's borders in the past, including one earlier that year. And at that point, it was not at all clear that this was actually going to turn into a shooting war. And the opinion that it was going to turn into a shooting war sort of only crystallised right at the end of the year, or even in January. So we did not say that we thought there was going to be war in Ukraine. And partly as a consequence of that, we were also, I think, too optimistic about how transient inflation might be in 2022. The war, of course, pushed up prices of energy, and that has fed through into other things. And so it has meant that inflation is definitely going to be higher for longer than we thought. So those were the two big things that that we got wrong. But we got a lot of other things right. We got the election results in France, Brazil, the Philippines, and Angola right, for example, and the outcome of the US midterms. We said that Georgia Maloney in Italy was a person to watch, and that she had a fighting chance of becoming Italy's first female prime minister, which she then did. We said that Boris Johnson in Britain was at more risk from his own backbenchers than he was from the opposition. And then we also said that NASA was going to smash a space probe into a small asteroid. And that last one was easy. And this is because events on Earth are very unpredictable. But once things are up in space and like orbiting, they follow the much more predictable paths of celestial mechanics. I love that contrast between the predictability of celestial bodies and the lunacy on Earth. But I want to ask about the super forecasters uh, record as well. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I also assessed the uh, the super forecasts. And um, of the eight things that the super forecasters predicted for us in 2022, they got five right. So they also, uh, we asked them to call the election results in France and Brazil, and they got that right too. The lack of a, of a boycott of the Winter Olympics, they were correct on that. Again, the outcome of the US midterm elections and the rate at which COVID-19 vaccines would be rolled out. And the specific forecast there was at what point would we get to a global number of total vaccinations exceeding 12 billion. And they were absolutely right on that. However, the three things they got wrong were really all the same thing. And they arose from the Omicron variant. So we were expecting a new variant of COVID to spread in 2022. What we didn't realise as we went to press in November 2021 was that it was actually already spreading. So it happened sooner than we expected. We were expecting something sort of later in 2022. As a result of that, the prediction about when this new variant would emerge was off. And that also meant that global GDP growth was lower than expected in 2022. And it also meant that the prediction about when air travel in America would get back to its pre-pandemic level was also thrown off. So there was five out of eight, but the three that they got wrong were really all the same thing. Hmm. Warren, what do you make of your performance? What's the metric of success for you? Well, that's one way to do it is just to say, well, how often were we on the right side of 50-50? And by that very simple metric, we certainly aim to do better than five out of eight. We're not going to get eight out of eight, but it'd be nice to be more customarily in a six or seven zone. Another way to think about keeping score is when we have a lot more questions to keep score of. And then we can use something called calibration, right? Because we're thinking in probabilities. So if we say 60% versus 80% versus 90%, those are very different ways of thinking about uh, the, the probability of a particular event occurring. So if you've got 
say, 100 questions in your track record, as we do, we have thousands, then you can say, well, let's take a look at all the questions where there was an 80% probability assigned. If you're accurate probabilistically, then 80% of the time those events should occur, and 20% they shouldn't. And that's a track record we have. It also means that 20% of the time uh, you risk looking like an idiot. And hopefully it'll be on questions that are maybe not so consequential, but sometimes it will be on questions that are more consequential. And it's on those occasions where we really want to make sure we've learned our lessons. Were we wrong for the right reasons? Did we miss something? And that's the sort of thing that call a postmortem that we've done with uh, all of these questions to make sure that we uh, continue to get better. Tom, let's go back to the forecasts for 2023. We are speaking in January. Have any of them been proved right or wrong already? Yes, on both counts. So after our failure to see the Ukraine war coming, we've sort of covered ourselves somewhat this year. And I specifically asked one of our writers to do a piece on potential flashpoints around the world, because that way, you know, we've got lots and lots of possible things for people to keep an eye on. So one of the examples that was given in that piece was the India-China border high in the Himalayas, where there was a skirmish in 2020. And we warned that there could be more to come. And in fact, there was another small skirmish in early December and and the temperature does seem to be rising on that border. So that's already happened. But I think the big unexpected thing that has happened since we went to press has been China dropping its zero COVID policy, which happened in December. We assumed that there would be some loosening of restrictions in 2023, but we weren't expecting a complete 180 degree turn on this. So we included it as a possibility. And uh, one of the ways we do this journalistically is we do these little boxes that are called what ifs. And they're little boxes that say, you know, we don't think this is that likely to happen, but it could do. And if it does, it could be quite consequential. So we had a little what if box saying this might happen. If Xi Jinping does live the zero COVID policy, that would um, presumably help the Chinese economy, but potentially hundreds of thousands of people could die as a result of the big exit wave that you would get. So we'll see whether that proves to be accurate. It's very hard to know, you know, with the numbers coming out of China not being very reliable. So we had that down as a sort of relatively low probability, but high impact outcome. And that has indeed already happened. So it's kind of hard to ask you what unexpected thing you expect. I feel like sounding like Donald Rumsfeld here with known unknowns (laughs) and unknown unknowns. But can you speak a bit about what big unexpected event might catch you up this year? Well, I suppose the the unknown unknowns, I mean, you know, who knows if there'll be a a giant earthquake or something like that. But I think the areas where I feel kind of we might end up with egg on our face is where you have these events that are potentially very consequential, but we think are low probability. So will Putin be ousted? Will Putin go nuclear? Might there be a sudden resolution of the conflict in Ukraine? We think all of those things are quite unlikely. But if they did happen, they would be a big deal. Similarly, uh, we don't think it's very likely that China will make a move on Taiwan this year. We think it's becoming more likely. But we think a direct move on Taiwan like that is not going to happen. We think it's more likely that China will sort of try things on in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, try to test the metal of America and its allies and and so on. But again, we could be completely wrong on that and there could be an invasion and then, you know, we'd be wrong. And Warren, what would you highlight as your known unknowns for this year? What are the upsets? Are there particular areas of geopolitical uncertainty where you're less confident in your ability to make predictions or are there matters in the economy that you think are going to be especially volatile and therefore hard to predict. What are the things that you are wary of this year? But we um, think of maybe two categories of uncertainty. One is the gray swans. 
So what are the sorts of things that are very low probability but high impact? And uh, th that certainly includes conflict in the South China Sea, the use of a nuclear device. And, and one that I've been focusing on in particular is kind of a reversal of last year's Gray Swan, where Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, where we had a low probability attached. And we now have a low probability attached to some sort of an agreement being negotiated between Russia and Ukraine. If that occurs, that would be highly consequential in all kinds of places where a lot of the stresses that unfolded last year would unwind. Inflation would presumably ease. The stresses on the European economy would, would also ease. So that's something I'm looking for while respecting the wisdom of the crowd of my fellow super forecasters who attach a very low probability to that occurring. The other kind of uncertainty is we can only know so much about certain kinds of events, and in particular about what's going on inside the heads of global leaders. We can only know so much about what Putin may or may not do. And that means that there's a lot of residual uncertainty about anything attached to events involving Russia. Same thing with a lot of global leaders, including Joe Biden. You know, what ultimately is in his head as he thinks about the year ahead. So we just need to be humble when we're making our forecasts. And while we attach precise probabilities to our forecasts, we recognize that the difference between, say, 7% and 6%, we don't want to overstate, but we certainly do want to hold ourselves accountable. Yes, I would just add to that, that I think one of the reasons that the invasion of Ukraine came as such a surprise is that a lot of people looked at it and said, well, why on earth would Putin do this? It doesn't make sense. And is it because he's been given bad information? That's possibly part of it. But a lot of it is also that we're sort of assuming that Putin is acting in a logical way and sort of saying, well, if I was, I wouldn't do that, therefore he wouldn't do it. And, you know, as Warren points out, not everybody acts for sort of purely logical reasons. They act for emotional reasons. They do unexpected things. They have motivations that we can't understand. And so, yes, that is a reminder that um, we need to be humble. And just because something seems unlikely or illogical to us, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So this time a year ago, we were forecasting the probability that Russia would invade Ukraine. And the super forecaster platform, a lot of us were making the point that it makes no sense for him to invade. He's already getting everything he wants, and he would just put that all at risk. But there was a minority group, and they were saying, maybe so, but look at what he's doing. So the, the reality on the ground was at variance with what we considered to be a rational actor. And a lot of us were slow to recognize that we were understating what Putin's motivations actually were. Well, I think that that's a good note to end on, that there's a degree to which you can predict, but that humans are inherently unpredictable, right? And so there are ways in which this can all be upset by a single irrational actor. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Warren, two immensely rational actors who I've had the pleasure of speaking with. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about our predictions for the coming year in the annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is on newsstands now and available at economist.com slash worldahead2023. And you can hear more from me on our weekly U.S. politics podcast, Checks and Balance. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The World Ahead was a tempo and talker production for The Economist. The producer is Tom Pooley and the executive producer is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Charlotte Howard in New York. This is The Economist. Mm -hmm.